Today on Physically Spiritual, I have the joy of talking to Jason Shanks. We will be exploring the relationship between illness and holiness through his experience of being hospitalized, nearly dying, and spending time in a coma as he recovered from COVID-19. Welcome to Physically Spiritual. I've been amazed by how much running physically healthier has changed my spiritual life. I'm captivated by discovering the truth about my body and how it reveals God. Physically Spiritual is my attempt to harmonize and share what I've discovered. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt. In addition to his vocation as a husband and father of five, Jason Shanks, who I'll have the opportunity to share with you all today, is the president of the OSV Institute for Innovation. His over two decades long career in the church has primarily focused on creating and renewing Catholic apostolates and organizations. Jason serves as a consultant on the Committee of Religious Liberty of the USCCB and is the treasurer of the board of the National Eucharistic Congress. Welcome to the show, Jason. Hi, Andrew. It's great to be with you. It's, it's been a while. It has been a while. We go yeah, back this to our Toledo days together. Toledo days, and even before that, because I was, this is a joy, because either when I was involved at OSU with SPO or the Josephinum, I met you while you were still, what, like the parish manager down in German Village? You did? Yes. Wow, this goes, yes, this goes back 20 years, you and I. Yeah, way back, way back. And I think you had helped start up a little organization called Catholic Youth Summer Camp then. I did, yeah. Um and then, and then I discerned out of the seminary and came back to the Toledo area. I and then I followed maybe about you. the same time you started as the secretariat leader here in the diocese. So, well, it's so great to be with you. Thank you for having me. What a, what a joy! What a pleasure this is. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm going to post a few things in the show notes for people to see. One is uh, your full testimony from the journey home that I remember you on on years ago. Years ago, but I was a, I didn't have these gray hairs then. <laughs> yeah. And I was wondering, just to start out, if you could maybe just share a little bit of what God did in your life, though, to bring you into the ministry that you do today. Yeah, that's a long story, right? So you can definitely go and, and watch the conversion story of how I became Catholic. Yeah. Um, and, and that has a lot to do with the Eucharist, right? That has a lot to do with John chapter 6 and discovering, you know, that Jesus really means what he means, that you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Um, but to even get to that point was a sort of a long sort of journey of exploration and discovery. And I was brought into the church in 1999. Um, so coming up on maybe an anniversary of, of joining the church. 25, yeah. 25 years, right. And so made that, made that decision, um, but really had made that decision almost a year before, uh, after a, a lot of discovery going through uh, what's now called Crew at Miami University in Oxford, mm -hmm. Ohio. And asking a lot of fundamental questions, which I'm sure many of you have, your listeners have asked, um, but really sort of accidentally ended up in the Catholic Church because it wasn't what I wanted. Um, I thought Catholics were cannibalists and I thought Catholics, um, you know, worshipped um, idols and did all kinds of things. And so once all that was sort of uh, realized those were straw man arguments and dug into the Reformation and the faith alone and scripture alone questions. And ultimately went back and said, well, what does the early church teach? What does the early church believe? Thinking it would be very simple. It would be, you know, without all the hocus pocus of the Catholic church. And I was surprised when, you know, they were baptized on Pentecost. And the first thing they did was baptize and break bread. <laughs> and, and, uh, and so then the Lord just kept talking on my heart and, um, and then I remember sort of like the scales falling from my eyes. I had read John chapter six many, many times, but in this time, um, understood it as the real, the real presence of Jesus Christ, um, and knew I had to become Catholic. Like at that moment, most of scripture made sense to me. Uh, everything sort of clicked. And, um, but then I had to deal with some of the fallout of becoming Catholic, like most people, um, most converts, family, friends, and others who um, uh, weren't all that thrilled and uh, became Catholic and then um, taught in the inner city for three years um, in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, and then around that time, started getting involved. Even before I was technically Catholic, I was running a Catholic youth ministry group, which is a story in and of itself. Um and as I was doing that is when we started Catholic Youth Summer Camp. So my background was uh, based off camps in the Ozark Mountains in, um, 
and did uh, Protestant camps and wanted a Catholic version of it. I saw a lot of Catholics going to the Protestant versions. Uh, and so we started Catholic Youth Summer Camp now, what, 25 years ago. And now it's called Damascus and it's doing really great. I'm not so involved anymore, but the guys there and the, and the work they're doing is tremendous. Went to seminary, like you said, I went to seminary for, uh, thought I was going to be studying to be a priest. And so I did study there for a year in pre-theology. And then I decided to turn myself out. Uh, and they did something sort of unusual. They allowed me to to uh, work. So I went and worked at St. Mary's in German Village. I did all the pastoral ministry work. And then um, eventually I did the business work as well. But they allowed me, the Josephinum, to get my master's in theology. So I got my master's in theology in the new evangelization. And then later I've, I met my wife. I met my wife. And um, we got married 20 years, 20 years this October. Oh, congrats. And we um, um, started having children and decided, you know, pair salaries just aren't going to work. Um, got another master's at that time in nonprofit administration from Notre Dame. And then um, ended up in Toledo, Ohio, uh, doing secretarial um, uh, secretary ministry uh, leader, which at the title, the title's a hard one these days. Um and love that. Did that for about two years and then went to Catholic Charities in Detroit and really worked there with Archbishop Ignoran to merge the entities into one entity. So a lot of my background, even in college before I was Catholic, was how do we take ideas and put them into action? How do we move um, you know, new ideas forward? And I started getting a little bit of a reputation of a fixer, a guy who's a change agent, someone you bring in if you need to merge something or, or renovate something. And that was what brought me to Detroit. And then after that, um, I got a call from our Sunday visitor and they wanted to relook at what's called the honor Sunday visitor Institute. And that Institute is the sort of the philanthropic arm of OSV. OSV is this famous Catholic newspaper over a hundred year old ministry, uh, who's just does tremendous, tremendous things all, uh, in the church. A lot of it behind the scenes that many don't see. And they were doing grants for years, but they wanted to look and take that in a whole new direction. And so um, for the last six years, I've done that work. And we've been focused on what is sort of the entrepreneurial um, ideas that need to be brought forward in the new evangelization. So John Paul II talks about, you know, in the new evangelization, new in ardor, new in expression, new in method. And we were discovering through people actually just sending grants to us that wasn't a whole lot of new methods. Uh, and and what we found was there's a lot of um, things happening in the church, but we're not sure it was working. So uh, And so we started things called the OSV Innovation Challenge uh, and gave prizes away for people to bring ideas forward. And we started uh, TED Talks for Catholics, which we called OSV Talks, and really just trying to spur um, – a new movement in the in the area of evangelization that people could think about how am I going to reach our neighbor? And this was sort of at the time where I would say the church was looking licking their wounds, like Cardinal McCarrick and a variety of other things was happening. And we were trying to put the put everybody more on a footing of mission again. And so been doing that for the last three years, of which uh, you said it in my bio on the last probably year. And what I'm currently doing is assisting with and helping the National Eucharistic Congress as they're planning a big event in Indianapolis. And I'm now uh, assisting with some of that work from OSVs, uh, loaning me out to them. And I'm, I'm trying to help that come to life. So a lot of startup activity is what I've been um, probably focused on in the last six years. Yeah, that's exciting. And, and so if you all head over to osvinstitute.com, You'll find some familiar faces over there. I mean, previously on the show, we had Dr. Kathleen Birchelman, who I think was in the Innovations Challenge one year with My Catholic Doctor. Um, yeah, exactly. And then also we had on um, Osam from Fierce Athlete, who I think gave one of the Innovations talks. And so she did. you'll find some familiar yeah, faces over there. Yeah. See, OSV's everywhere. We got to <laughs> have our hands in a lot of different pots. And, yeah, and you, you mentioned two, two of the good ones right there. And if you... If you dig deep into your local parish, chances are between the the bulletin, the envelopes, the website, OSV is probably somewhere supporting your parish and some of its basic functioning. So, yeah, we're we're in fifteen thousand of the seventeen thousand parishes, and so yep. it's um, we, we like we're like the back engine 
that helps the parish go. And I think you're right. We're probably in some form or fashion in your local parish. Yep. Yep. So, so as we talked about this opportunity, when we reconnected a few months ago, um, you know, I, I kind of watched from a distance as a few years ago, you had gotten sick and I started to get these kind of prayer requests that turned into kind of urgent prayer requests. Um, and I'd sort of watched the saga from a distance of you really kind of almost like you had one foot in the door of the end. And then the Lord kind of pulling you out of that with, of course, the help of good doctors and family and everyone else. Um, and something that, you know, this shows all about the intersection between health and holiness from a Catholic perspective. And, um, you know, I, we, we talk a lot about sort of new science and new technologies and how it can help us to live our lives as saints. And also the way that the insights from our faith help us to live a holier, happier life. A lot about virtue, stuff like that. But I haven't spent a lot of time or had the opportunity to talk a lot about illness and the effect that being sick, being in the hospital, going through these ordeals really affect our life as disciples. Um, so could you just share with the audience, like your experience with COVID and what that whole ordeal was like for you and your family? And Yeah. So, you know, we're going back a few years, right? Back to, what was it? You know, 2020, 2021. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, those were the days where when you bring the mail in, you would leave it in the garage for a while. We were bringing the groceries in and we were, <laughs> we were wiping them down. Cause we, you know, we, we didn't know, um, but we knew hospitals were filling up. We knew, uh, this was spreading like wildfire. People were getting very sick and many weren't making it. If you remember yeah. back in the Mac at the time, this was the time when they were short on even, um, the machines to, to, um, to intubate people. And so they're, they're doing mass production of intubation machines and, um, and so just to give context, right? I mean, and, and when that hit the area we live, which is Fort Wayne, Indiana, at my age, with this at the time, I was like 45. Um, I wasn't able to get a vaccination. There wasn't a lot of those medicines on. So if you remember, again, back in New York and stuff, they're bringing in, they're bringing in ships, you know, with portable hospitals and stuff. Well, we saw all that coming to the Midwest and it hit Fort Wayne and just, just like everywhere else, the hospitals started filling up. And my, we got COVID through my special needs daughter, who everybody else was at home, but she, she unfortunately needed to go uh, somewhere every day. She brought COVID home to the family. We got it. We went and got tested. Sure enough, we had it. All the kids had it. We have five kids, um, my wife and I. And um, I don't know if this is related, but you know, as an asthmatic, I got it pretty bad. And I was, they put me on, um, at, at home breathing treatments. Wasn't going very well. I'm really struggling to breathe, but because of my background with asthma, I sort of know what I can handle and what I can't, when I need to go somewhere. And when I, and I was really struggling with these breathing, I was really struggling to be able to breathe. Um, so I went to the hospital, um, went into the emergency room. I, I waited, I waited, I waited, I waited. And they came out, the nurse came out. She said, we have nowhere to put you. And I was like, well, I need to go home then because at least at home I can get a breathing treatment. So I left, came back home for the next four days, struggled and struggled and struggled. To I remember coming down, barely able to walk down the stairs, um, went into my office, started putting my shoes on. My wife said, where are you going? I said, you're going to call for the squad. I'm going to go to the hospital. She called for the squad. I was taken out um, by squad to the hospital. I mean, smartly, I knew if I came by squad, they're probably going to see me. Uh, so we get to the hospital. Now, again, as an asthmatic, I really thought I was going um, for like a breathing treatment, send me back home. I'm laying there and um, they came in and they did a lung x-ray. And then they said, this is, this is sort of the second worst case we've seen. And we're going to have to sedate you and intubate you. Wow. Now, given the history of, of everything, why I went back through, I sort of knew what that meant, right? I mean, this wasn't, I mean, I knew what that meant to be sedated. Mm -hmm. And I knew what that also meant was I was bad enough that I might not come out of sedation. Mm -hmm. So I started um, texting people, my family, my parents, 
letting them know what was going to happen. Um, I called my wife and, and darn it, Andrew, instead of saying, I love you, <laughs> I said stuff like, this is where the checkbook is located. This is where our life insurance is. This is who you're going to need to call, right? Because at 45, I hadn't had these conversations about all of that. And I, I was handling a lot of the logistical financial elements. And it was dawning on me that she doesn't know how, how any of that gets done. And so that's what I'm going over with her as I'm laying there sick, getting ready. Um, I also said, I need a, I need a priest. I want to be anointed. Um, and so um, a friend of mine from the Josephine, believe it or not, who is here in, in Indiana, uh, he immediately got in his car and it took him 25 minutes, but he was on his way to anoint me. And um, my wife said something when this was all going on, I'll never forget. She said, Jason, um, I need you to write a text message to each one of your cho our children and mm -hmm. say goodbye. Because if you don't make it, I want them someday to be able to read these notes. Wow. So I don't know if you've ever had 15 minutes, Andrew, to say goodbye to everybody you love. That's pretty much what I have now and with five kids. I'm looking forward at, you know, my daughter someday, if I'm not there reading this message on her wedding day, or, you know, my, my son who at the time didn't know how to throw a baseball, you know, this message took on a, a huge amount of weight as well as I'm looking back and say, gosh, I wish I would have taught them this, or I wish I would have told them this. And now I got yeah. one text message, message, um, text message to say it. So I spent about 15 minutes, 20 minutes writing to each one of them. Um, and I guess I would stop there a second and just encourage everybody, you know, if I give you your phone today and said, I want, you know, you've got 10 minutes to say goodbye to everybody you love. What do you say? It's an exercise that is transformative for me, um, especially making it through. Um, but man, I mean, that was hard. And I also think one of the things we have to think about during this whole story, as you talk about people with illness is Illness rarely just affects the person. I mean, the caregivers and the families and the people involved. And, and this was just the beginning of that journey for them. So the, the priest comes in, he anoints me. Uh, he was very emotional. And the reason he was emotional is because they took him aside and say, Father, our next call to you will likely be of his death. That's how bad of a case I had. Now, again, I was sedated. I thought, okay, maybe a two-day, three-day thing. <laughs> Um, I was sedated for two weeks and then they woke me up for three days. And in that three days, they wake you up to see if you have brain functioning. And that three days I got septus and I got pneumonia. They said he's worse now than when he came in. They put me back under and I was under uh, again for another three to four weeks. In total, I was sedated for six weeks for 45 days. Wow. In context, I've heard a lot of commercials or people who say I'm sedated for a long time and it's like three weeks. I'm like, gosh, that's only half. Like this was pretty long. Yeah. Um, and what was happening in that time frame was now my organs were starting to shut down. So my kidneys completely stopped functioning. Um, I was on 24 hour dialysis. Um, they were starting to have conversations about putting me on an ECMO machine, which is the heart, um, and, um, and I still wasn't over COVID during all this. They, and so, uh, there was no family visits. No one could come in. Um, I'm completely isolated in that regard, of course, with the nurses and the doctors and the people. I had this wonderful doctor though. He was a parishioner at, um, where we went to church and he, um, was a Catholic doctor and he tells the story afterwards. He would go in my room at night as I'm laying there sedated. And he would put a uh, Lord's water on my forehead and he would pray. And, and he, he would say uh, that when, when he was in there praying, when the nurses and doctors would walk by my room, they knew he wasn't in there as a doctor that night. He was in there as a friend. Hmm. Um, this was a, this just highlight, I think just the, these amazing heroic doctors and nurses, Catholic or not, who became friends, who became family, who were prayed with, who counseled when I was getting better. Um, just, just real heroes for me. And he was one of them that 
uh, who did that. My wife said when all this was going on, she said, you know, COVID protocol should no longer apply. Uh, end of life protocol should now apply, meaning you've got to get me in to see him. I don't want him to die alone. Yeah. And we have this beautiful picture of her in there giving me a kiss. Um, uh, while I'm sedated, they sort of snuck her in. At this moment, things were so severe that it was looked like uh, I was likely not going to make it. That um, they, um, my wife said, um, they someone gave her a Saint Jude no, uh, relic, and she sent the Saint Jude relic in, and they pasted it. They 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 taped it, literally taped the relic to me, and a Saint Jude novena then began, and it it, it went all over. People prayed all over the world. I mean, the pictures afterwards, when they did wake up, they showed me pictures of Zoom calls and, and, and emails and, and messages. There was a few people on there that I said, uh, they're doing a rosary. They're not even Catholic. And I said, to, I said to them when I woke up, I said, had I known, I would have told you to keep me under longer. Those people would, you know, <laughs> would convert some people or something. But it was amazing. And every day of that novena, I got better. And better and better and better. To the last day of the novena, they they traked me, uh, uh, put a trach in, uh, so um, I could breathe better. Uh, with, and uh, they woke me up. I woke up the last day of the novena. And even during that period of the novena, the doctor said we knew at some point miraculously you were going to wake up. I mean, you were going to live, but we didn't know what kind of condition you would be in. We didn't know if you'd have brain functioning. We didn't know if you'd ever walk again. We didn't know what state you would be in. And so even today, when you talk to doctors, they're like, well, I mean, I asked them, was this a miracle or not? They said, um, well, you living is is probably a miracle. But they said for them, one of the miracles is, is that I'm able to, to even function and do the things that I'm doing. Now, I want to just go and tell you that during that time of that 45-day sedation, um, which we can dive into a little bit more later. But I I was not just laying there. I was dreaming. And so I had what's called ICU delirium. And for those days, which lasted a lot longer than 45 days, I was having very vivid dreams, some good and some horrific. And I thought they were real. And so one example in my dream state, my I watched my father die and was at his funeral and he had died. But then the way they woke me up, you sort of wake up gradually, the real world and the dream world sort of become one. And I didn't realize I was waking up. So when they woke me up, I did, couldn't figure out what was real. I couldn't, I had no understanding of what was real and what not was not real. And I remember um, my wife saying, your mom would like to talk to you. And so of course, COVID, you got to go on the iPad and FaceTime or whatever. And my dad was sitting there. And I remember closing, closing it and I couldn't talk. So I'm, I'm writing a little note. How is this possible? I watched him die. Wow. And it was there I was starting to realize something's amiss because um, the experiences I had were traumatic. I mean, he died a very violent death and I, I witnessed it. And so I had this trauma, real trauma, as I've come to learn, that wasn't real. I mean, wasn't, I mean, but I experienced it. So I had a sort of a PTSD. I would, when I woke up, I'd see things in the room that weren't there. So I just want to paint the picture that when I finally woke up, while everybody was excited and rejoicing and, and whatnot, I couldn't move. Um, so anytime during that 45 days, they, they pronated me, which means I was on my stomach for 18 hours a day, uh, with a, a tube. Uh, you can actually still see a scar from the tube. Um, and anytime they move my limbs, cause I've asked them, why didn't you move anything? Um, my blood oxygen would drop so, so much that they basically said, let's try to save organs and save his life and not worry about the limbs. So when I woke up, I couldn't move my arms. I couldn't move my limbs. I couldn't roll over. I couldn't use my tongue. I could no longer swallow, uh, because of, of the trach and everything. And I couldn't talk. I didn't have, it's called a talking valve. I couldn't talk. Hmm. So for the first time, Andrew, in my life, I am 
completely immobile, completely quiet, and mentally, I can't figure out, am I in a dream? Is this real? Is that real? Um, so it was just me and the Lord. I was put in a state for the first time where it was just me and the Lord. I've come to realize that, um, believe it or not, I've come to realize that uh, I can relate to the Eucharist. I'm, I'm sort of in the sense that, you know, Jesus emptied himself so much. Of course, he became man. Then he was, he was on a cross. Then he stripped naked. And then even from going to be stripped naked, he lowers himself even further to become the food we eat. Mm-hmm. And he's in a tabernacle around the world, immobile, quiet, sometimes lonely, waiting for us. And I thought, man, I am been through a cross of suffering. I'm literally, as they clean me and being stripped, which was humiliating. And because I couldn't talk and da da da, it was like, I feel like I understand what I would call the Eucharistic life in a movement that I think is occurring in this country. Um, I, I feel like I understand more what it likes. It means to sort of be food for others or to, you know, be the grinding of the wheat in a certain sense. And this experience was a very spiritual experience for me. Um, but I laid there and now I've got to figure out how do I get home? How do I get up? How do I get, you know, um, my, my wife, uh, as I'm waking up, um, she comes over, you know, she's looking down in the bed and she says, you can never be mad at me because I saved your life four times. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And she did. I mean, and so this story of my, of my journey is even more powerfully told from her end of, of, of the, of the care she gave to our kids, the advocacy she had to do on my behalf all the decisions she had to make and the rallying of prayers. There's a story in scripture. I mean, you, I think this is appropriate for your show. I've been, I've been relating a lot to the paralytics in the Bible. Hmm. Um, and there's two of them that um, I relate to, I think quite a bit. And one of them is the paralytic lowered through the roof. Hmm. And when I read that story, the scene for me becomes Jesus and the paralytic. I just always gravitate to where the, you know, that, interaction mm-hmm. and i forget about the friends that lowered him through the roof yeah. and for me what i came to realize is is all these people prayed me back to life and all these people prayed me i mean they lowered me through the roof their prayers of intercession uh saved my life and we forget about those those friends that were courageous enough to tear into the roof and say you got to be in front of jesus and you, Andrew, and others who got those prayer requests lowered me in front of Jesus. Hmm. And he said, rise and walk. And so I am, I, I was, I, so then the journey for me was I went from the ICU to um, another hospital that they get you off of the machines. And then they uh, go from there to rehab. And it took me another 45 days from the time I woke up to actually get out of the hospital. And then I spent weeks going through in-home therapy um, as well. And and those those times were some of the most challenging of my life to relearn everything and to and and you, you know it's you're you're sort of lifted up by grace, of course, but there was a lot of grit and will. There was a lot of times you wanted to give up. Um and and things started happening in terms of a realization that the suffering I was going to that I was there were, there was potentially anyway some graces merited from it, hmm. and so I did some work. Actually, Bishop Rhodes, our local bishop, came and visited, and we had some interesting conversations on how can I apply those graces to others, hmm. right? And I think sometimes when you're ill especially as a guy, you know, we become these big babies where it's, you know, we just get, turn inward. Yeah. And what happened to me is I turned outward in two ways. One, I, my wife would start bringing me these prayer requests because what was happening at this time, which we should talk about is everybody was starting to say, you're the miracle man. You're the miracle man. Even the doctors would come in and 
I mean, people would come visit because they 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 thought there, this miracle had happened. Um, so prayer requests would come in, and I would take those prayer requests and I would offer them to Our Lady uh, for any graces that uh, I may have received. And I offer that to say that this idea of redemptive suffering and using suffering for others was restorative for me. It was transformative, right? It it made it made this illness, it made this rehab, it made the hardness of it have a certain sense of meaning in life that I could apply to others, which I think made my recovery quicker and easier and better. Mm. And the other thing that happened was is the nurses and the doctors would come in and they would tell me their life stories mm. about their faith. Now I couldn't talk. So at one point I, I wrote my wife and I said, could you bring me the rosaries we got from Rome a few years back? We had its package. And when the nurse would come in and I would learn about their marriage situation or this, that, and the other, I would, I would hand them a rosary, a blessed rosary by our Holy Father. Again, it was a way for me to get outside of myself and to evangelize and to give the best I could, which, which helped, I think, in my healing process versus just sort of stewing in the, the pity of the whole thing. Now, I'm not going to say I was uh, some saint. Like there was times I was like, I'm not going to make it. Um, I remember both in my dream having a conversation with the Lord. And my conversation was, Lord, I, I, I can't, I can't go anymore. I, I don't, I don't think I can make it. I, I, I'm tired. I can't go anymore. And he basically gave me some tough love and said, you don't have a choice. You have five kids and a special needs daughter. Keep fighting. I said, okay. And there was time even in rehab, this great guy who did rehab, he knew I was just getting dejected. It was hard to, to get to learn to walk again and do stairs. The stairs were tough. And uh, he just did so. I mean, these guys, these, these health workers become your friends, your counselors, uh, your coach. Uh, I never forget when I came home, uh, I was uh, this far, I was, I was a lot better. And she goes, what do you want to do today? I said, I want to try to ride a bike. Now imagine, remember when you're like a little kid and your dad's out there and holding the back of the bike. Well, that's me as an adult on a big bike with the, with the therapist out on the sidewalk, you know, and the, all the neighbors, you know, and here I am. And I, I hesitated, I hesitated to go. And she said, why, why aren't you going? I said, well, I'm just, I'm just thinking about what if I fall? And she said, well, fall to the left at your bad side. And I was like, okay, that makes sense to me. I'll just fall that way. And I took off. Right. And I, I say that because it's those little moments that I think are life lessons. Like for me, I'm like, okay, what am I waiting for? Let's go just fall to the left. You know, uh, you, I went through all this. What's the matter of falling on a bike for crying out loud? Um, and so this was sort of my, this was, you know, my journey. And ultimately I came home, my wife brought me home. Um, I had missed, I had missed Christmas cause it was started in November. We missed Thanksgiving. I missed Christmas. And I said, I said, um, I said to her, I said, I, I feel bad. I missed Christmas. I didn't get to see the kids have Christmas. And she said, this is now February. She said, you didn't miss Christmas. I said, yeah, I, I did. She said, no, tree's still up. We left the presents. So we, we went home. We had Christmas. Two days later, we had Valentine's Day. And then three days later, we had Ash Wednesday. Tell that to the liturgical people. <laughs> <laughs> and what they got me for Christmas was, I don't know if you can see it on the camera. Yeah, yeah. At St. Jude. And so what oh. they gave me for Christmas when I came home from the hospital was this beautiful piece of art of St. Jude, who we now have a devotion to of um, obviously impossible causes. Um, and I've had to deal with post afterwards. I've had to deal with, I would like survivor survivor's guilt. Yeah. I've had to deal with PTSD. I've had to deal with the wounds and the trauma of everything. Um, and I've, and I've also got to also come to reflect of some of the gifts of it all hmm. of the things that it's transformed my life. It freed me. Because everything I do now, I wasn't supposed to be here for. Hmm. Um, I have a special needs daughter who has cerebral palsy and autism. She's nonverbal, 15. 
uh, can't uh, is, has a walker. First time in my life, I'm able to relate to her, given what I went through. And so all these blessings, but you know, there was definitely still mentally and other things, a lot of challenges we had to work through, including my wife, who went through, thought she was going to lose her husband five times. Um, and so we've been working over the last year dealing with, or last few years with those wounds and, and recovery, you know, spiritually and otherwise there too. Yeah. Thanks for sharing all that. The, the first thing that strikes me is that, like the frailty of life, you know, like you're, you're a capable guy, you're, you know, you're big, you're strong, you're smart, you know, like people see you and they see, you know, a strength. Um, but to see how quickly all that can be taken away. Um, and then the reality of our dependency. Um, but it just strikes me that like going through that experience, it, it's really a lesson in reality, right? Like I live with the illusion that I can lift my arm on my own, but the reality is like, I don't exist without God. So, so reality for the human is utter dependence. Um, and we go around with the illusion of independence and strength and self-sufficiency. Um, but that's not reality. And so one, it just strikes me of how you got a window into reality there uh, as it was taken away <laughs> that, well, you know, I mean, there's a, there was yeah. a, there was a verse in scripture that kept running through my mind when this was going and it's my grace is sufficient for you. Mm. And I think to your point, all of this is gift. All of this is grace. And when you go through something like this, we, there's, you re, you see a lot of the things that are just not important, a lot of pettiness and a lot of other silly things. And this, this does, I mean, this is why, you know, even in every Catholic retreat, there's a, there's a focus on the four last things, right? Like it, there's, there's, there's a purpose for that. It, it, it informs your life. And to your point, it certainly did for me. I mean, I got a dose of that reality, but a dose of the other and absolute dependence that we have on the Lord. Mm. And, and that all of this, the walking, the breath, I mean, just the very, the nature of our breath, what a gift that. Um, that is, and I think it's a shame that it takes something like this, that for us to get it, to understand that. Um, and for me, it, it, it was, you know, it was, it was literally like, you know, I always like doing things my way. You know, there's a certain sense of self-sufficiency, a certain sense of independence. And this was the Lord completely taking me to a place of utter, uh, an absolute dependence on him and others. Right. Um, it's transformed our marriage. My marriage is completely different um, in a wow. great way because of it. Um, you know, and so I, I mean, um, so I agree with you. I mean, I, yeah, this is what it the- does. I mean, what is, what does C.S. Lewis say, right? Pain is a megaphone to arouse a deaf world in a certain sense. Right. And so there's this, there's this element that um, these things can happen uh, to sort of arouse us out of this idea that it's just us. Yeah. The other thing that struck me right at the beginning was clarity. You know, like the clarity of having to write those text messages, the conversation with your wife, the everything kind of coming. It's like you had to put a punctuation at a sentence that wasn't done being written. Um, but then like so much of your work throughout your career and what you do is all about clarity, right? Like helping organizations reach clarity, find their purpose, have a vision. Um, so of what you're doing from the challenge and it just, there's a, it seemed like there's a kind of a fittingness to this of like, okay, Jason, like you're out there helping people find clarity and vision and God really sort of brought it home for you in that moment of like, do you have clarity in your personal life, in your heart, in the deepest core of yourself? I agree. And, and I think more than that, I would, I would admit to you and the audience that, that I'm not sure that I always understood my vocation to marriage and my kids as primary. Uh, I do think, I mean, E.M. Bounds, as a Protestant author, says a lot, it's easier for me to talk to others about God than to talk to God about others. And I think mm-hmm. to your point, I've done so many different things in the ministerial world and uh, to help different apostolates and groups. 
And this was a clarifying moment to say, I am being brought back here for my kids and wife, right? That's, that's the focus and the priority. Not that I'm not going to continue to do my job and do things for others, but, but it was clarifying, right? And, and, and this is, this is our, this is my role. I'm a dad and I'm a husband first Mm -hmm. and nothing clarifies that quicker than having to get out your text message and say goodbye. And to, and to really think about, oh man, I wish I would have said this or done that or taught this. So I, I would say through the whole experience, it was a lesson for me on, um, on what is important. And, um, um, because I especially think in the areas of church, right, where you're serving the Lord. So everything has a, you, you feel like there's a certain weight or urgency to it, but doesn't come, it doesn't, it should not be in the way of your vocation to your marriage and your family. And so it was clarifying for me. It clarifies what's important in life. Um, and I say that as a man that I think intellectually knew all of that. I was teaching marriage courses and this, that, and the other. But there's a difference with you know heart knowledge and head knowledge sometimes. And I think this is definitely yeah. something that can wake you up. Yeah. The, the more I read the Gospels, the more I realize that Jesus wasn't in a hurry. And that there's no correlation between getting things done and spreading the Gospel. Um, you know, you could be the person in the room that gets the most done, but does the least to spread the gospel pretty easily. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. I mean, management, I mean, he could have had, you know, major events like, you know, but he had 12 people, right. He built into them. Right. And so, um, um, so yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of, um, a lot of truth to that. Right. Um, with that said, you know, I, I'm the guy, I'm a guy who likes a little urgency and a little pep in our step to get some stuff done. Uh, and so that's what made this so like, you can't do anything. Right. And you're completely out of commission for, for months. Um, yeah. and yeah, so that was, was humbling. And even now, now that I'm sort of back at it, helping on different things, it's a constant reminder of trust in the Lord, dependency on him. This is his work and not my work. Um, just be a beloved son of the father and, um, you know, not, not put yourself out over your skis as if you're doing any of it. And so it's, um, it's been great. It's been a good, you know, there's a book I like, um, Devo- um, Providence of Divine Will. It talks about the sacrament of the moment and meaning that if you ask every second of every day, what's God's will? how different your life would be. And you've led it that way, how different all the world would be. All of us were saying in every moment of the day. Um, and I think for me, um, that's what this taught me in a, in a particular way. So I mentioned that I was confused and couldn't figure out what was real and not real. And what brought me out of that was this realization that in this world is the ordinary. In this world, you actually wash dishes. And you actually um, go to the bathroom and you actually fold laundry. In the dream world I was in, it was all like a sitcom or another scene. All extraordinary things, but nothing ordinary in it. And I thought that seems very weird. And I said, this must be the real world. And so I've come to understand that idea through this of the sacrament of the moment and the understanding of the beauty of the ordinary. You know, and I, and I think that's also to your point about the gospel of, you know, Jesus at home, Jesus with his, with Mary and Joseph, um, Jesus with the, the apostles having conversations and having dinner. And so I think even in the work of ministry, we think of these extraordinary type things. Um, but I came to stop and learn of the, of the ordinary everyday stuff that matters a ton. And it's what grounds us in reality. And there's a certain sense of just beauty of it. Yeah. As you, as you talk that, I have some Dominican theology running through my head of like the effect of the grace of justification being that, that every act, no matter how small has a sanctifying quality, has a sanctifying grace, um, to everything done after baptism in the state of grace. Um, as, as you talk to like, there's like in this, or there's really like a master class in Catholic anthropology you know, you have like, you have like the integration of faith and reason. It's like you had the best care from these doctors mixed with 
this high level of like spiritual intercession happening. Yeah. Right. And probably if either were removed, you probably wouldn't have made it. Correct. Like both were necessary, but not sufficient. Um, which I think like reflects God's typical um, functioning in the created world. And, and, and additionally, we have like the communion of saints, you have intercession, you have instrumentality, you have the devotions that are happening, the sacramentality that's happening. You know, like all of these dynamics are at play in your story. Um, and I'm pondering that, I'm just thinking like for you personally, like God never misses a good advantage to take advantage of a situation. Hmm. Uh, right. So, so in all of this, like you'd already mentioned about these doctors or others who are having some insight openness to conversion, sharing their stories, maybe breaking through some of their mundane, turning them toward prayer. Um, but I'm curious, like, yes, God saved your life. Um, but I'm sure he used that as an opportunity to do something deeper in you. And as you've had time to like reflect and pray and discern, like what do you think the Holy Spirit was doing like deep in you through this experience? I definitely think it was more interior and then, and then exterior meaning, um, I do know, frankly, reading stories and different people that that the that my making it had some impact. Mm. Um, and I struggled with that actually. Um, I remember um, running across the. Uh, I was showing up at a church, and someone started running across a parking lot who I've never met before, and gave me a big hug, and said, um, "I've never stood next to a miracle before." And that was hard for me that believe it or not was not like harder than you think. Um, people were saying things like you, you know, you're like Lazarus or something. I'm like, Nope, Lazarus was actually dead. Um, and so some of that survivor guilt stuff I think was hard for me. Cause I, I saw people, at least I think I saw people who did not make it. Uh, and I know even family members who did not make it. Um, so I, I would obviously go and tell people this was of the Lord. I did really nothing, um, but praise God for him, right? There was nothing. So I struggle with that. But interiorly, I think it's transformed my life. Like, and I, and I, I think I am just now unpacking for me what this means. And I, and I, and I think there's a sense, there's a sense for me spiritually that I'm just starting to understand the self-emptying nature of Christ in the Eucharist mm. that I think as we think about Eucharistic revival in the church, I think that the God is, is, is trying to point us to something deeper uh, there. And it's having an impact, I think, on my, on, on me interiorly in my interior life. Um, that um as well as you know i i feel like a guy once once you are laying in a bed um completely stripped and someone's washing you and they're feeding you and you're doing this i, I feel like i could just drop the mask and everything already right i think i can just be real and vulnerable but i think what that means is to be real and vulnerable with myself on wounds and traumas of the past and yeah. what that healing process looks like. And so I've been humbled to a certain sense um, in a positive way that I think it allows me to finally be opus, open to some healing that was needed on other things. Um, and I'm not sure I would have ever done some of that work needed had I not gone through this physical um, illness and physical experience. And so that's why I wanted to be on your show. Like I, to me, it's so interrelated, um, the spiritual, the physical, the, the mental, all of this sort of came in a culmination for me in a, in a 45 to 90 day moment. Um, that sort of for me brought every theology class and philosophy class for that matter, uh, to life, um, because I felt like I lived it and, um, 
I came out the other side. Yeah. As you share that, the words that are echoing in my heart are Jesus's response to Nathaniel, you know, like, how could I climb back in my mother's womb? And he says, if, you know, if you don't, if you're not, uh, being baptized in water and spirit and talking about becoming like a child again, in so many ways, like the state you were brought in is similar to that infant who's newborn. Yep. Right. And, exactly. and so there's a real like sacramental reality that I think that's the state of the newly baptized spiritually. <laughs> yep. Um, and we're often sort of blind to that, both in the ministry we provide to them, but also I think one of the greatest errors we all make is to overestimate our spiritual maturity, um, which never does us any good. Um, so you were really given like a window into like, what's that really like? <laughs> exactly. And, and again, I, I feel like, I feel like this was, this was going all the way to the core of the center of my heart, like our heart mm-hmm. knowledge. And, and this was sort of bypassing all the courses in theology and, and this, that, and the other. And, um, and this was a, you know, this was a, a taste and a variety of, for me anyway, there was a lot of relation to suffering that Christ went through and, um, and whatnot. Um, I can tell you, by the way, in my dream state, there, there was a moment that I, I thought I was going to die. Like there, I knew the moment where I could sense where my time is up and, and, um, there was a lot of me prayer during that moment. Next thing I know, I'm awake. Um, I think my guardian angel was in there in my dream state and stuff. So it was a really strange, weird time for me. And the, the, I didn't know I was that I was sedated for that long. I woke up and I'm like 45 days. What? The- <laughs> uh, like what? I miss Christmas. So, um, yeah, um, it was. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good place to land. What the quote that comes to mind from John Paul II is it's the body and the body alone that can make visible the invisible reality of God. Um, yeah. So Jason, thank you so much for sharing your story on the show. Thank you for your witness for a, just your ongoing love for your family and for the church and, I'm honored to call you a friend and look forward to reconnecting. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate you having me on and um, God bless you and your work and, and for this great podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to or watching Physically Spiritual. I'm so grateful for every moment you've given to this show. Please remember to subscribe, like, follow, and share the show. And if you want to support everything we're doing at Physically Spiritual or at Awaken Catholic, you can become a patron of the show at physicallyspiritual.com. To find anything I'm up to, head over to becominggift.com. God bless everyone.